Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. Thank you for joining us. Tonight, we take on a complex and controversial topic, tobacco, pot, and the public interest. We'll explore issues surrounding the legality and use of tobacco and marijuana with a special focus on the tension between personal liberty and the public good. Before we start tonight's conversation, I'd like to invite you to come to these live shows if you're in Iowa City and you'd like to join us for the uh, live discussion. We'd love to have you. Or uh, you can catch them later on UITV, on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Uh, you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. Tobacco's characteristics, its allure for smokers, its addictive qualities, and harmful health effects, and the legal but regulated status are well known to most Americans. In fact, over the last quarter of a century or so, thanks to massive public education efforts, we've seen a sharp turnaround in public attitudes and private behaviors regarding tobacco, uh, largely because of the recognition that smoking tobacco dramatically increases health risks to smokers and non-smokers alike. Uh, this reversal has been, I think, something of a public health success, uh, aided by the establishment of legal limitations on the sale and marketing of cigarettes, laws prohibiting smoking in public spaces, and both voluntary and legislated restrictions against smoking in restaurants and establishments. Nonetheless, tobacco remains, as it has always been, a legal substance for adult use. So let me introduce my guests who will help us understand both the history of tobacco use and its hold on generations of smokers. Uh, directly to my left is Christopher Squire, director of the Oral Sciences Training Program at the University of Iowa College of Dentistry. Thank you for being here, Chris. Mm -hmm. uh, next to him is Douglas Beardsley, uh, director of the Johnson County Public Health Office. Uh, Doug, thank you for being with us. Appreciate Thanks it. For uh huh. On the far end, we have Dr. Robert Philibert from the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry, uh, professor here at the university. Thank you for joining us, Robert. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. So, Chris Squire, uh, let me just start with you. And uh, I know you've been deeply involved in research into tobacco use uh, here in the States and all over the world. You are, after all, Director of Global Health Studies here at the University of Iowa as well. Um, so I wonder if you could walk us through the history of tobacco use and uh, what some of the deleterious effects are for those who smoke and even those who don't. Okay, Joe. Um, it's nice to be here. And the story of tobacco, the history of tobacco, is really an American story. Um, if we go back um, 500 years, time when Columbus came to this continent, there was only tobacco in the Americas. It had been there a long time. Tobacco has been used in the Americas for probably three to 4,000 years. Um, earliest traces of it are in South America where they cultivated it. They used it in different ways, including smoking it. And it gradually moved up Central America probably 2,000, 2,500 years ago, evidence for its use, and then into North America about 1,800 years ago. So during all that time, no one else in the world knew about tobacco. It all changed, as many things did, after Columbus and the first voyage arrived. And they saw the natives using tobacco. It, it intrigued them because they were using it in different ways. It was chewed, it was smoked, um, it was rubbed on, it was used as an enema. It had medicinal uses, or so they believed. But above all, of course, it was good to smoke and to chew 
because you got the nicotine, you got the addictive agent, and you became addicted. They took it back to Europe initially. And the remarkable thing is, within 200 years of it being taken back to Europe, it had spread almost everywhere in the world and was being grown, being cultivated and grown in most of the rest of the world. So for three and a half, four thousand years, nobody else knew about it. Then within a few hundred years, the whole world knew about it. And it was used in um, slightly different ways from the way we see it now. It was smoked, pipes, cigars. It was chewed the way it's chewed sometimes now. Um, but there were no cigarettes. And what changed that was the invention in the late 19th century of the automatic cigarette machine, the machine that made cigarettes very, very rapidly. There had been some use of tobacco wrapped in paper. Um, the French did that to some extent. Um, much smaller, much thinner than cigars, easier to use. But a man called Bonsart in 1883 invented this machine that could make cigarettes many, many times more rapidly than hand rolling them. So the big thing there was the price dropped. They became a very affordable product. And of course, use escalated. And that was where we saw incredible increases, particularly in this country, because after all, this is where tobacco was developed. And you had a young man called Buck Duke, who saw the possibilities, licensed the cigarette machine, in fact, bought, manufactured a lot of them, set up a cigarette business. And Duke eventually made enough money to be able to endow Duke University, a university we think so highly of, but was founded on tobacco profits. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also spreading across the rest of the world. And yet, nobody was aware, really, of any, um, any problems with using tobacco. Partly because people were suffering from many other things. For example, if you get a cancer from tobacco, a lung tumor, one of the most commonest um, cancers you get from using tobacco, that can take 20 to 30 years before it's evident, before it may kill you. Well, people were dying from infectious disease and other things well before they got to that age. So it didn't become evident, but there were some early indications, some work in Germany in the 1920s, and particularly work here, um, actually at, um, in St. Louis, showing this increasing association between people that were smoking and lung cancer. Until that time, so now we're talking about 1940s, lung cancers were a fairly rare lesion. They increased dramatically and almost always seemed to be in smokers. And so you got the first inkling that maybe tobacco wasn't that good for you and perhaps could be quite bad for you. And a lot more work was done then in the 50s. Now, with the first suggestions that this could, this could kill you, this, this could cause serious disease, this could kill you, the tobacco industry started doing what it did then for 60 years or so, denying the evidence, stating that there wasn't enough information, more research is necessary kind of statements, um, and trying to reassure the public that they didn't have to worry. Well, they did, 
because people were then smoking at a greater rate and beginning to die at a greater rate. And so finally in 1960s, 1964, the Surgeon General put together all this evidence in the first Surgeon General's report on smoking and lung cancer. And that was something of a bombshell because it got a lot of attention. It certainly got the tobacco industry's attention and there were the first attempts to warn people. The first labels were mandated for cigarette cartons which said um, smoking may harm your health. I mean, it was about as wimpy as you could get in a warning notice when you think about now smoking kills. Um, but that's because of the opposition from the tobacco industry. But it had an effect. They took advertising off electronic media. You couldn't advertise uh, tobacco, cigarettes on TV or radio after the 60s. And there was a tax increase. It, it was about the last time there was a serious federal tax increase. And you have to note that after that time, the federal government did very little in the area of tobacco control. Most of the initiative passed to the states. And the things that we're now aware of, it was higher taxes, smoke-free laws, mainly have been enacted, almost totally been enacted at the state level. But it did mean that people began to think about smoking, began to stop smoking. So that probably the peak of male smoking was in the 60s. And since that time, it has dropped to the present day. It's at probably half the rate. Over 50% of males smoked in the 60s. Now the figure is somewhere down below 20%. So that had an effect. Now the tobacco industry did something um, very subtle and quite disgusting. If men were smoking less, what about women? Women had been smoking less. It wasn't something that a lot of women did. They started promoting tobacco use to women and some brilliant campaigns. I mean, insidious, evil, but brilliant, such as you come a long way, baby. Some of you have probably heard that. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, they were matching cigarette use with empowerment, sex, that's right, with, um, with the... Um, entry of many, many women into workforces. And it worked. Women started smoking more as men started smoking less. And right now, we're probably, we may be past the crest of female smoking because their rates are going down. But their rate of lung cancer is still going up. And a few years ago, it exceeded deaths from breast cancer among women. But the tobacco industry had another trick, okay? If people were dying or quitting in this country, they had to find fresh customers. And they moved out to other countries. They moved to the developing world. And as countries became prosperous enough to afford their manufactured cigarettes, and you have to remember that Western cigarettes, the Marlboros and so on, cost more generally than local cigarettes. So as countries became able to afford to buy them, they moved in. A bonanza occurred with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and they went into many of the newly independent Soviet states, Soviet countries, um, now independent countries, and started promoting tobacco on the basis that you could make money off it, governments can tax it, it provided employment, they did amazing sales jobs to get tobacco into these developing countries. And that is still going on as 
nations become a little more prosperous, tobacco is being pushed. Africa's a big focus at the moment. Southeast Asia, smoking rates have gone up quite considerably. And what we now have is a global epidemic. Um, this, last year, two years ago, probably five million people died worldwide. So, to put this in perspective, still in this country, 450, 480,000 people a year are dying prematurely from using tobacco, from smoking primarily. But worldwide, it's five million. And as rates go down in this country, they are still going up globally. And so we haven't reached the peak of this global pandemic. And the tragedy here is that the countries least able to deal with such burdens um, are the developing countries. They don't have the budgets to take to provide the health care, and they have already a lot of other problems. So this is a very cruel issue that's occurring. So we still have to look at ways of dealing with the global epidemic. We come back to this country. As I said, the number of people smoking has gone down. Um, it's about 19% overall the population across the country. Um, uh, no, sorry, slightly, about 18%. Iowa's higher than that. Unfortunately, smoking rates in Iowa, having come down fairly dramatically, are now beginning to creep up. Smoking rates among high school kids are beginning to edge up. And this is partly because of a backing off in the area of um, cessation, um, publicity, public health, in fact. People believe we've beaten tobacco. Smoking rates are going down, aren't they? They don't realize that the moment you back off, the tobacco industry is in there promoting tobacco. Um, it spends, for example, about $90 million a year in promoting tobacco in the state of Iowa. I don't know if anyone knows what the budget for tobacco prevention is in the state of Iowa, mm -hmm. the IDPH. Mm -hmm. No, you're, you're not allowed to answer that. Well, it's currently $3 million, so who's winning? So this, this is one of the issues we've got to address, this continued smoking, um, let alone the global situation. And this really brings us to approaches to helping people to quit, and that's public health. And so I think this is a time perhaps to turn to Doug Beardsley, who is Director of Public Health in Johnson County, um, an expert in this area, and to give us a perspective on public health and cessation of smoking. I was I'm cautious when you're called an expert on something because then people expect you to, to know a lot of things. Um, but from the public health perspective, just a little bit, to, you know, people turn, well, what is public health doing about it? Public health historically has always been about protecting uh, the general populace, so as groups of people. Started off early with, with quarantines. The United States government uh, did quarantines because they, they saw that there were things coming in, whether it's products or people, that needed to, uh, we needed to take care of that so it didn't cause harm to others. Uh, and then, as, as, as Dr. Squire mentioned, uh, as public health was very successful in, um, in, in controlling communicable diseases and infectious diseases, then it started to creep out. People are dying. Now what are people dying of? And it's the chronic diseases. 
uh, and then going back and what are the root causes of those, tobacco just always came back up to, to the top. Even before the Surgeon General's uh, report, uh, there, there were, it was intuitive. People knew cigarettes aren't good. I remember seeing old movies done in the 30s where they're talking about you shouldn't be smoking because it takes away your wind, talking to, to an athletes. So they, they recognized there were ill effects. Um, some of the tools that we've used in public health, uh, again, it's to affect populations. So affecting access, uh, laws that, uh, you know, who can purchase under 18, we, you know, we, we restrict uh, purchasing, possession, or use, and that varies by, by state. Uh, taxation to help get that price up, because that's, a, again, an access issue. Although we see that it's the lower income populations who have the higher rates of smoking. So there's, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of, you know, a dichotomy, something that, that, that's not working there. And I think a lot of that is the targeting uh, through the tobacco companies. Uh, and also there's just uh, how do we help people who are addicted to get off? And I think we'll probably hear more about that. One of the things that, that uh, is of concern now, though, is the, we talked about, Chris mentioned the, the tactics of the tobacco industry. And they're not sitting still. They're finding other ways to addict new users to the product. Uh, one of the new things coming about are e-cigarettes, the electronic cigarettes which, uh, you know, if you saw any of the uh, advertisements, totally harmless. It's water vapor. Well, it's not water. It's vapor, but it's not water vapor. Uh, you know, um, and so some of the things we know about that is they still contain nicotine. It's still addictive. Some of the things we don't know is, is it really a gateway? Is it going to, uh, uh, if someone starts on e-cigarettes, are they going to then use tobacco? We do know that a large proportion and a growing proportion of our youth who've never used tobacco are getting hooked on e-cigarettes. Uh, we know that people who are currently smokers are dual users now. They say, well, let's, let's try this out. You know, and, and it may have been a well-intended, and I think the original researcher was looking for a way to help uh, smokers get off this, but it was, again, uh, taken over, bought up by the tobacco industry um, but, but that gets us into the realm, you know, we're looking at ways, well, you know, how do we reduce harm? Uh, you know, if we can't eliminate it, it would be great to eliminate tobacco use because there really is no safe level of tobacco use. There's no safe level of exposure like we, we see, you know, uh, OSHA establishes standards for exposure. There's no safe level for tobacco smoke. We don't know yet the... Uh, if there's a safe level of exposure to e-cigarettes and the vapor, some of the, the uh, ingredients in there, some of the same ingredients in e-cigarette vapor that there are there is in tobacco smoke. So still a lot of questions, and we're promoting, let's go about this cautiously. Um, uh, let's not get a renormalization of smoking behavior in the public. We've, we've made these great strides, but now we see starting to take a step backwards and say, let's light up in the theater with an e-cigarette, it's safe. We're not quite sure. Some of the early studies do show that the non-smoker is still absorbing some of those chemicals. You can actually detect nicotine in the, the, the non-smoker. So public health does, uh, you know, we are looking at ways to uh, continue to address tobacco use.
Well, you know, we've, we've mentioned addiction more than once, twice. We've been talking about cessation as well. And I know, Rob, that uh, you, uh, you are a psychiatrist and you do research on, on things like addictive behaviors. What can you tell us about tobacco? You know, first of all, I, I always like to get away from the, the term addictive. Addictive is, has a, a pejorative connotation. When we think of an addict, we think about people that are willing to break societal rules to do things. And the vast majority of people that are trapped with cigarette use are actually what we like to call dependent. But more to your term here is that as far as the looking at what we, the steps we need to do to address this, we have to attack it at a number of levels. Certainly, you know, my specialty is the biology. The, through the large, large corp, uh, collaborations we have, funded very generously by the National Institutes on Drug Abuse and the National Institutes of Health, we're taking a look at epigenetic mechanisms that can be used to detect, prevent, and treat um, tobacco dependence. Um, the same technologies, the question is, is that can we grasp the biology of this dependency a little bit better to help people say which approach would help you quit. But I don't think that any approach in isolation can be used because any type of dependency is contextual. And the behaviors that happen in one environment do not happen in other environments. And so there has to be a consistent pan-society effort from the medical community, from the public health community, from the educational community, and from the community at large to stop smoking. And the more importantly, it gets to, uh, to the point that Dr. Squire pointed out. The tobacco industry is spending $90 million in Iowa to promote smoking. You get a small chunk of change of $3 million. And somehow we have to flip that to make it to 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 make it clear to the people that are trapped in the biology of this dependency that it is in not only in their personal, their professional, but only in their business interests to stop smoking. And indeed, it's in all our interests that they stop smoking. Yeah, and you know, we we have seen at least one uh, uh, national uh, corporation, uh, CVS, declare and publicizing this all the time, that they will not sell tobacco any longer in their, in their stores and in their pharmacies um, for reasons that, that they explain. I haven't seen lots and lots of other pharmacies step forward and say that they're no longer going to sell tobacco, but you know, they say we can't in good conscience sell something that we know is so bad for our customers. Um, what was your reaction to this when you saw this happen? Well, I, we were happy, and actually I took that to the Board of Health, and we wrote them a letter saying, thank you, congratulations. And and I don't know how this well I forget how this fits in is uh, you know again public health we're trying to create the environment where there are incentives so somebody is thinking about you know I really do need to quit and urge them or nudge them to seek the help whichever whatever it is most effective so you know again the access you know if if it's it's just so inconvenient uh, that eventually someone realizes you know it's better for me to to quit. Uh, either through cost or, you know, I have to go outside and smoke in the uh, in the blizzard. Uh, 
you know, and hopefully there'll be a, you know that aha moment that you know maybe I, I should seek some help. Uh, that help. Are you encouraging blizzards? <laughs> <laughs> if you're properly prepared. Some of the best uh, cessation tools, do you think? Uh, obviously, you say that it takes many, many. Uh, you have to attack it in, in a, you know, in multiple ways in order to help someone. The best one is support. Yeah. Far and away, we can address the biology of it. But the thing is, is tobacco is a dependency, and the like any illness, we don't treat people. We treat families. We treat communities. And the, probably the best thing you can do for any smoker is, how about an attaboy? How about simply an attaboy? How about a congratulations? How about saying, you know, you haven't smoked in a, in a year. That's great. And talk about the positive influence that has on a person's spouse, on their family, on their children. So there's a lot we can do for medications, but the best thing you can be is simply be a human being. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a great way to start off this program. I appreciate it so much. Um, next to me here, Christopher Squire. Uh, next to him, Doug Beardsley and Robert Philibert at the far end. You'll see some of these uh, guests in uh, future segments. So I hope you can stay with us for part two in this series when we'll look at marijuana or cannabis, the properties of the drug, potential for addiction, and changing public attitudes toward the use and the regulation of cannabis in both recreational and medicinal forms. So that's coming up in just a moment here. All World Campus Programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to learn more about Film Scene, you can go to icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr, and for UI International Programs, thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of a three-part series on tobacco, pot, and the public interest. I'd like to remind you that you're invited to join us for these live shows in Iowa City if you find you can. Otherwise, you can find these programs on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. You can also find pro uh, information there on upcoming programs and also the archives of all of our past World Campus shows. If you'd like to learn more about Film Scene, go to icfilmscene.org. In this segment, we'll be looking at marijuana or cannabis, the properties of the drug, the potential for addiction, and changing public attitudes toward the use and regulation of marijuana in both recreational and medicinal forms. Marijuana has long been part of American culture, but it has lived underground as an illegal and presumed harmful drug. But changes in public attitudes toward marijuana in many parts of the country have resulted in legalization or at least debate about the potential for harm to the individual and society from the use of cannabis. Although there's clearly no uniform agreement on the question of legalizing the recreational use of pot, research has shown that medicinal cannabis, often called medical marijuana, may improve pain, side effects, and discomfort for certain seriously ill patients with a variety of conditions from cancer to epilepsy to PTSD, resulting in calls from many quarters to allow patients to receive medical marijuana by prescription. This debate continues in our state and across the nation. And we'll be talking about all of this in this segment with our guests, uh, Robert Philibert at the far end, professor in the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry. Thanks for being here, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here, John. Yeah. And here next to me is Frank Caligiuri, 
uh, professor at Drake University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. And thank you, Frank, for coming over from Des Moines. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, appreciate it. So I think we need to start this discussion with an understanding of the makeup of marijuana or cannabis. Uh, what are its pharmacological properties and which of those properties have led to the classification of marijuana as an illegal drug? Uh, I could throw that question to either of you. Do you want to go first, Frank? Sure. Um, I'll initiate the conversation here. So today I use the term cannabis to talk about anything related to what may be termed marijuana or pot. Um, it helps to get away sort of the 80 years of negativity associated with sort of the reaper madness movement of the past. And so I think it sheds it in a new light and is um, better to have a medical conversation using that term. So that's what I'll be using here today. And um, there are two species of the cannabis plant, but what's really important are the constituents of it or the little compounds uh, within the cannabis plant. Uh, the most well-known to everybody is THC, um, which was discovered in the 60s and is responsible for the majority of the psychoactive um, effects of the cannabis plant overall. Um, however, research has continued since the 60s, and now we've isolated about uh, over 60 different compounds known as cannabinoids from the cannabis plants. And it's those compounds that are responsible for the not only psychoactive effects that we associate with the plant, but also some of the therapeutic effects that we're seeing in current research. Um, so that's a little bit of a background on cannabis plant, and it's currently considered a Schedule I control, uh, from the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, which essentially says there's a high risk for abuse potential um, and no current accepted medical use. And so um, at this point in time, in 2015, that's where um, the biggest discussion is taking place. Is, the, is this the appropriate scheduling for uh, this plant, cannabis, in the Schedule One with no accepted medical use. So that's a little bit of a background. Yeah. And I know that you have given testimony before various committees, the Iowa legislature, sure. um, helping those members of our elected bodies understand mm -hmm. what's in this, uh, uh, what's in cannabis. And you know, um, I'll have to ask you, but I, I suspect that you are most interested in presenting what you know to be uh, the, the medical and pharmacological side of, of this discussion. You're, you're not particularly promoting one thing or another. No, not uh, at all. Yeah. yeah. But um, in terms of the uh, – everybody in this room is aware that in Iowa it is illegal to buy, smoke, sell marijuana or uh, – marijuana is the term of art on the street, sure. I guess, right? Um, but um, there has been a lot of discussion in this state and in other states about – allowing um, prescription delivery of some of these, these elements mm -hmm. uh, through oils, uh, cannabis extracts, and so on. Um, what would be some of the benefits to a patient? If you could describe a, a patient, an imaginary patient out there, and some of the symptoms that person has, what might um, cannabis help That's a with? very, very good question because it's such a broad uh, array of things is what we're seeing from the research. I think what's really helpful um, for people to kind of look at it in a medical context is to make an analogy with something that's pretty well known to the general public, which are endorphins. Um, everybody out there in the audience, I assume, knows what endorphins are. Uh, they were named so because they're sort of our endogenous morphine, and that's where the name was derived from. And uh, the research is quite interesting because, um, you know, we discovered these compounds, morphine in the poppy plant, very similar to how we've discovered the cannabinoids within the cannabis plant. Um, and throughout history, we've isolated these compounds. Morphine or heroin were some of the first isolated from the poppy plant. And we went on to continue to follow those compounds and see where they worked in the brain and why they were so effective at stopping pain. And we found some receptors in the brain that are well known to stop pain, the mu receptors, and I'll keep it uh, relatively less scientific. 
Um, but after that, researchers thought, why do we have these receptors in our brain? They can't just simply be for these constituents of the poppy plant. And uh, sure enough, we found that in our bodies, we endogenously make these endorphins. So the average person realizes that if they stub their toe, these endorphins might come in to kind of help augment the pain. Or if you've been on a long run and your legs start to feel a little bit heavy or painful, those endorphins kick in. Um, so when we use drugs like narcotics or opioids, we can see the analogy. These are sort of more potent endorphins that we can't simply produce enough when we break our arm, so to speak. So we may need something like morphine that's stronger. However, what most people don't know is that research also continued in the cannabis plant, um, primarily in Israel and Italy. Um, in the 90s, uh, the same thing happened. We traced the THC in the brains and thought, where is this going and why is it doing those things? And we discovered receptors that were specific and unknown previously to this, known as the cannabinoid receptors. Uh, in fact, we discovered an entire endogenous system of receptors. Uh, there's two primarily right now and two hormones similar to endorphins that your body produces. So um, this is the endocannabinoid system, if you'd like to learn more about it. And so when it comes to the therapeutic effects, research is looking at are there dysfunctions in somebody's endocannabinoid system? Do those things change in somebody? And therefore, by supplementing um, the cannabinoids from the plant, are you working on this endogenous system to help maintain homeostasis and help their symptomology? That's a uh, a little bit of a background, but I don't know that the general public appreciates that there's an endogenous system there that these compounds are acting on. I think the general public likes to think that most of the effects from cannabis come from the sedation it causes or the euphoria or those things. But in reality, there's um, pretty well-defined at this point physiological and pathophysiology uh, associated with this system. So, And is it true that for medical uses generally, we wouldn't be talking about smoking uh, cannabis. We would be talking about right, there some are, other kind. There um, are different um, dosage forms available, and so they vary from everything from smoking in the typical combustion manner um, that we know produces toxic chemicals, but there are also things similar to e-cigarettes um, like vaporization where uh, the compounds are heated and release the active um, particles for use. And then, of course, there are things like we have approved here in the state of Iowa, which may be uh, cannabis-based oils. And then additionally, people use topical preparations as well. And those so, are allowed in Iowa. Um, right now, the current law um, allows for uh, a neurologist to prescribe uh, cannabidiol oil. And there's been some issues with um, ways to acquire that oil for right. patients I here see. in the state. Yeah. Rob, what kind of um, thinking have you been doing over the years uh, about, um, we talked about addiction as a term in the prior segment, or dependence. Um, do you have experience in studying marijuana and uh, what it, the addictive uh, qualities or the, de the dependency-creating qualities within this particular drug and how they might compare with alcohol or any other substance? Well, the NIH seems to think so. They, they send me millions of dollars to do it. <laughs> so, the, you know, the, the, the cannabinoids, the, when you look at cannabinoids, and you look at cannabis, cannabis is, a, is like most of the other substances. There's, when you look at the behavioral classification, we like to think there are 11 basic categories of substances or uh, in substances of abuse or dependence. And cannabinoids are one of them. Um, like most forms of, I just like using the term addictions, is that the biological variability to that individual variability is about 30 to 40% heritable and about 70% 
due to different environmental susceptibilities. So uh, the bottom line is very complex. Um, we are continuing to move forward in understanding the precise genetic variation that makes people vulnerable. But I want to point out, more importantly, is that the individual differences in the vulnerability of the people in this room only varies slightly. And more importantly is, is that that vulnerability is only a small portion of your total attributable risk for it. And the vast majority of the variance, whether you become dependent on cannabis or not, is actually secondary to the environment. So if you are around a lot of people who are using it all the time, you are more likely to you know, develop it? The rate of uh, cannabis dependence probably in states that uh, are very, shall we say, anti-drug like Utah is markedly lower. As we talked about uh, in the prior segment, is that in the absence of the substance, there is no dependence. So there is an interaction between availability in the environment and your vulnerability. Hmm. And, and, yeah. No, I was just going to say um, there's certainly when you talk about the medical um, use of cannabis, there's no denying that there is a abuse potential for cannabis. And this is where I'd like to explain the scheduling of controlled substances yeah. um, because the, the two primary classes that um, you need to be aware of as a citizen if you are engaged in this topic or conversation is Schedule 1 and Schedule 2. And what's interesting about those two schedules are they both say the same thing about abuse potential and harm. They both say substances in these categories have the highest level of abuse and the highest um, potential for harm. The only difference is that Schedule 1 says there's absolutely no medical accepted use, and Schedule 2 says there is an accepted medical use. So to give you some examples, in Schedule 1, cannabis falls there, which is a little bit odd considering the fact that it is actually legal in 32 states um, to have a product like that. So it's recognized for its medicinal value on a state level, but not federally. Um, and then other controlled substances in Schedule 1 include LSD, um, psilocybin, um, heroin. But when you move into Schedule 2, it's interesting because Schedule 2 contains substances like methamphetamine and cocaine. Um, so those are Schedule 2 substances. And again, as you can see, Nobody's debating the harm or abuse potential of those substances. We consider them all quite highly readily available for abuse. The only difference is it's just interesting that cannabis um, has not been moved to a Schedule II. That's the discussion occurring nationally at a federal level. There's been a bill introduced by um, a bipartisan committee led by senators from Oregon and California for rescheduling. The American Academy of Neurology has recently published a report in December asking for rescheduling to increase research so we can learn more about its effects in epilepsy um, and other neurologic conditions. And even the American Academy of Pediatrics um, has called for rescheduling. And again, when you say, I support rescheduling a cannabis, you are not saying anything different about its abuse potential, its harm, what you think about the youth using it. You still say that it's not that, but you're opening up the window for potential research and acknowledging that there may be some therapeutic effects for this. But I think it's all at the same time, it's, Frank, it's very important to recognize right now the same uh, academies that are calling for uh, greater research also recognize there is no systematic body of evidence that suggests that cannabis actually has clinically beneficial effects. I think more importantly is what they're recognizing is, is that in the current environment, our policies are perhaps having greater, you know, never make the cure worse than the illness, we say in medicine. And I think sometimes arresting, uh, arresting kids for making, shall we say, for experimenting, for making 
poor decisions is probably not the way we want to, to go in our society. Um, you know, one very good example of the, I would say, overselling of the medicinal benefits of, of marijuana has been as far as cancer. And for instance, you're quite familiar with Marinol. But it, in, in clinical trials, our current uh, chemotherapeutics that we use for controlling nausea are much superior to Marinol. And of course, in the state of Iowa, uh, we've legalized this, uh, legalized it for control of certain types of epilepsies. Yet there is no controlled trials to demonstrate that is effective in epilepsy. So uh, the, the, the policy of medicine is not necessarily the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And I think what we have to do is move carefully into this environment, do the research, and engage the public in education. Um, is marijuana the reefer madness you, you mentioned? Probably not. Is it, shall we say, is it a panacea? Certainly not. And I think the public has to be realized is that, you know, the, the, the keys for better living come through healthy habits. Medicine can play a role, and can cannabis play a role for some individuals? It's possible. But right now, the jury is out. What would you say to a family? Um, I've been reading a few articles and blog posts from people who are pushing for um, uh, greater um, uh, availability of, of um, medical cannabis. And, um, you know, so if you talk to a parent who has a child who's severely ill, who seems not to be helped as much as the parents hope the child could be helped in any number of, um, you know, symptoms that are side effects that are terrible for this child. The child's not a driver. The child is not, um, you know, hanging out with a bunch of people sharing dope. This is a kid who needs some kind of relief. And the parents say, look, maybe it won't be the answer to all of our problems, but it might help. Shouldn't it be available? As, uh, you know, if, is, what, what do you say to somebody who says, couldn't we try it for my sick child? Well, the FDA actually has exemption programs for this. And right now at the federal level, they have chose not to, to engage in that. And I, I, you know, whether that policy should change, I think this is really, you know, this is why we have politicians to make these type of decisions. The body of the, the job of scientists and physicians is to advise such, such individuals. I'm confident with time and with patience, we'll make the right choices. Yeah, there are currently um, studies underway. In fact, um, a researcher, a neurologist here at the University of Iowa is, um, enrolling patients in a, in a product known as Epidiolex, which is just one of the constituents of the cannabis plant. Um, and within a few years, we should have the data for that to really be the sort of breakthrough on whether at least CBD or cannabidiol works for epilepsy. There have been abstracts reported at recent neurology meetings and such where people are reporting their preliminary findings. And I would agree that cannabis is not a panacea or a catch-all. Um, but they are seeing somewhere around half the patients seeing about half their seizures cut in half, at least in these preliminary reports. So um, there's at least something to be said about the benefits, and um, that's what sort of got me involved in this as an educator is just simply to be um, help with the education and dissemination of information uh, about the topic as well as be a patient advocate uh, for people who may not be in the situation to understand the material that they're reading or, or to look at the science. So that's where I come into play and what I see as my role and what I try to pass on to my students as well is, is the patient advocacy. So all we'd really like to see is that rescheduling to increase research so we can find the answers to these questions. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's fair to say 
the same research at the university because like uh, I run a lot of large labs, so we collect a lot of DNA and serum samples. Is also showing that the harmful effects of marijuana on developing brains. Make no mistake, cannabis kills new neurons. Now the question is, is it the worst thing in the world? Is it worse than alcohol? Is it worse than tobacco? I think the jury is still out in many circumstances. But I think, once again, this is a policy situation. The job of scientists once is, is to do our studies, to advise. But you know, the question is, we will not know the answer unless we do the studies. So, you know, we've been talking about public health, and we'll have another segment about public health. Um, is this one of those cases where public initiatives, in a way, have sort of gotten ahead of the science and gotten ahead of the, the sort of uh, all the, the data that needs to be sorted and we need to come to some kind of large conclusion? If you look at the states that have now legalized the use of marijuana and um, we don't know what will happen, what it'll look like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, who knows, but... Um, but there has been a public drive to change the attitude toward at least legalization of, of uh, marijuana. Um, how does it strike you? I mean, does this, I know this is political life in a way, but it's still, it's a controlled substance, and we have other controlled substances that, that are legal under certain kinds of regulations, alcohol, tobacco, of course. Um, you know, what do you think when you see states... Um, overturning uh, the, the former restrictions and allowing greater access? Um, personally, I think they're just kind of more up to speed with the current literature that's out there in all honesty. Anybody can go to PubMed and do a search at what's been done. And, in, and here in the United States, research is quite restricted because of the Schedule One access and the DEA licenses required. But however, around the world, there are other uh, countries really excessive in research. So for example, Spain is one of the leading researchers looking at um, different products. The United Kingdom has a um, pharmaceutical company who has about eight different formulations in the pipeline currently, and two of them being um, investigated by our current FDA. Those are known as Sativex, which is available in 24 countries, and Epidiolex. Um, not only that, we, we touched on Marinol briefly. Marinol and uh, Sesamet or Nabilone are the two drugs that are approved by the FDA, and uh, those were approved back in 1985 to help with um, nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. But as uh, Dr. Philibert said, they're not very effective. And part of the reason was they were just isolated, just THC, and people couldn't handle the side effects of such a psychoactive substance. Um, some of the newer drugs that are coming to market are combinations of the constituents of the plant, which lessen the side effects. Um, and what's interesting, um, how I also got kind of plugged in when I was in, in the year 2009 was when this really kind of popped up in the state of Iowa. Um, the board of I uh, Iowa Board of Pharmacy was challenged to look at this issue of whether it belongs in Schedule One or Schedule Two in 2009. And forums were held all over the state, including here in Iowa City. And people came from all over, uh, physicians, public health officials, um, citizens, to talk about it. And the Board of Pharmacy went back and gave their ruling in 2010. And they said that we believe, based on the evidence and the literature search performed by the Drug Information Center here at the University of Iowa, actually, um, that there's enough evidence at that point in time, and this is 2009, to support the rescheduling. However, they made their recommendation, and it was up to legislators to pick up the ball. I was sitting in Missouri thinking, I'm really proud of my progressive home state. I think we're doing things to help people that might be suffering. Um, so let's see what happens. And then you fast forward. I moved back in 2013 to work with Drake University, and a gentleman by the name of Steve Jennison, who is a former Iowa graduate from the University of Iowa School of Medicine, 
um, was here from the state of New Mexico to talk about their cannabis program and was actually the director of that program. So here's a homegrown Iowan guy coming back to tell us about his program, what worked, what didn't work. And what I found interesting about that is when people consider medical cannabis programs, the first thing that comes to mind is California, where you can get a card for anything, or Colorado, but how many people have ever heard anything about the New Mexico program? Very few people. It's a very well done, tight knit uh, program. They have about 10,000 patients in their registry, half of which um, receive medical cannabis for PTSD, um, which is unique to that state. So um, that was sort of how I got in the loop here in the state of Iowa, plugged in with these guys who were um, advocates, and that's how I met Senator Bolcombe and such. So recently in 2014, the Iowa Board of Pharmacy was challenged with this topic once again. Uh, they just made their recommendation in January of this year, and once again, they moved uh, to support rescheduling to Schedule 2. And there's a current bill, um, Senate Bill 1005, that's in place this year. So you can speak to your um, senators and legislatures about that if you do support um, the rescheduling of cannabis here in the state of Iowa. I would also add the state of Connecticut is an interesting model. What most people don't realize is each state can do their own thing, is what's, what's kind of the nice thing about this. So in the state of Connecticut, they've rescheduled it as a Schedule II, and only licensed pharmacists are allowed to own dispensaries and dispense it as a medication, um, which is unique in the first model like that. Our neighbors to the north in Minnesota have a model that doesn't allow for any smoking of cannabis, only liquid and such. So there are a lot of variables um, that people in the state of Iowa can consider uh, if we do come up with a cannabis pro program. The, the key thing I wanted to uh, uh, put before the, the, the community here is number one is the jury is out on the merits of cannabis. And like the tobacco industry, like the alcohol industry, I think, you know, the, the key thing, it's quite clear it's not a panacea. It's also quite clear to date no drug has been shown to be effective in clinical trials. Now, does that mean that won't happen? Um, no. In fact, you know, there are a lot of drug companies working on it. And if there is something to be to, to that will come out of it, I'm sure Pfizer, Merck will get it done. At the same time, it's important to realize in the public debate is to look at the motives of the individuals that are pushing for things. Have patience and realize change when change is beneficial does not come quickly. It comes with forethought and with, I would say, a little bit of reservation. So I wouldn't be running in to, to legalize marijuana. Do I think that we need to throw kids in jail for using it? Nah. nah I, I, I think that's the wrong approach. I look at it as, as, a, as a drug, like many other drugs, and that sometimes some good can come out of it. Wow. Uh, in the last moment we have here, you, you mentioned some of the research your lab does, and, and you are funded by, because it was NIH and, and some of these uh, large uh, health organizations. What kind of research are you doing into? Mm -hmm. Essentially what we have developed and, uh, and patented, actually, our technologies that allow us to quantify the type of substance you're taking, how much you've taken it, and how long you've taken it. And we're hoping that that type of approach will help us understand the environmental interactions and the phenomenology, the clinical phenomenology that begins with the predilection to substance use, the initiation process, and the dependency process. And our hope is, is that by better understanding the environment and the behavior, 
that we can more effectively prevent, diminish escalation, and better treat forms of substance dependence. Well, thank you both. Wow. Frank Caligiuri from Drake University here, Rob Thillibert from the University of Iowa. Really appreciate you both being here to educate us on this issue. Um, unfortunately, that is the end of this uh, segment of World Canvas, and we hope you can stay with us for part three in just a moment, where we'll discuss the sometimes contentious intersection between personal liberty and public interest. World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. And you can find out more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr, and that's it for uh, this part of our program. Thanks very much for joining us, and good night. Hello, and welcome to World Campus from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and we're happy to have you join us for part three of this series on tobacco, pot, and the public interest. Our guests in this segment will help us explore the tension between personal freedom, much of it guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution, and the notion of the public good or public interest, which guides so much of our communal action. Regulatory issues and public attitudes toward tobacco and marijuana raise critically important questions for our society, questions about the concept of the public good. For example, where exactly does the perceived public good bump into constitutionally guaranteed rights of personal liberty? In regulating harmful products or substances for the public good, are we legislating morality? We hear these terms thrown around a lot, and uh, our two guests here will help us sort through some of this. And I'm uh, very happy to be able to introduce Todd Pettis, just next to me here, who teaches at the University of Iowa Law School and is also an associate dean. Thanks for being here, Todd. Thanks for the invitation. Real pleasure. And uh, very nice also to have you, Doug Beardsley. You are the director of public health here in Johnson County. And so thank you very much for rejoining us in this third segment of our program. Thanks for inviting me. Yes. Um, for anybody who's interested in finding out a little bit more about this uh, program, past programs, don't forget that you can find all that information at the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. Um, I'm going to go to Todd first because I think we need to get a little bit of grounding in what our Constitution does and doesn't say about regulating personal behaviors, individual rights, uh, always a hot topic in, in this country, whether it's a political debate or whether it's neighbor to neighbor. And um, so I wonder if you can tell us, what does the Constitution say about personal interest when it comes up against public interest or what we think of as the public good? Well, for the, the vast majority of things, we're left to our own devices, so to speak. We're free to be our own heroes. We're free to be our own victims. There's nothing in the Constitution that as some kind of an intelligence meter or something that only laws that are justified and so forth are, are valid. And so we can pass foolish laws, we can pass smart laws. There are, of course, some individual liberties that are spelled out in the Constitution, the, uh, the right to speak, the right to practice religion. Those get varying levels of protection. Most of them get an in quite a high level of protection. But what those rights largely serve to do, particularly with issues like uh, tobacco, uh, and cannabis is it leaves us, it, it sets the framework within which we're going to have these conversations and figure out what kinds of policies we want. And so we have the freedom of speech, for example, where we can debate uh, what the policy should or should not be. We can lobby our legislators. Uh, we have rights to vote. There's an equality of voting, so my vote counts no more nor, uh, nor less than yours. And, you know, out of that comes sen some sense of policy. There's uh, 
another sense in which the Constitution sets the uh, framework, uh, which is through our federal system of government. We have 50 states, and to the extent we wish to use them in this way, as the famous saying goes about states being laboratories of experiment, we can try different things in different states and find out you know, if, if we increase access to cannabis, for example, for certain purposes, what are the long-term consequences? If a state raises its hand and says that it wishes to uh, proceed down that road, it can do so to the extent federal law uh, doesn't interfere. And so with things like tobacco and cannabis, or matters about which the Constitution is silent, we're left free, at least at the constitutional level, to do what we want to do, whether that's in our, uh, turns out to be in our health interest or it turns out to be quite regrettable. And so uh, we'll be talking to uh, Director of Public Health in a moment here, but from your point of view, um, when, w when did this idea of uh, sort of the you know, public good sort of, um, um, we, we, we speak in, in um, you know, our most treasured U.S. documents about uh, you know, having the right to become whatever it is we ought to be, pursue our own happiness and so on, but there is also common defense and um, a sense of community within the United States, right? Is there any place within the constitutional documents or any of our founding documents that says that we need to look after our neighbor's health? Or uh, wh where does this, uh, where do we find um, um, language about that we very often hear in uh, in national political debates that you know my freedom stops at your your door or you know when when did that all get written into the way we think here in this country? Well, it's, it's, it, that's hard to answer. With you can't name you can't identify a particular document or uh, uh, name a particular date. It's kind of an ethic that pervades our constitutional tradition. Our constitution, when it comes to individual rights, speaks much more about what the government cannot do to us than it does about what we are, uh, what the government is obliged to do for us. Uh, that's a, a kind of a big watershed distinction that, uh, that shows up quite a bit. So, you know, when we think about what is in the public good, the Constitution identifies some things that have been deemed to be in the public good. It's deemed to be in the public good if we have a right to speak. It's deemed to be in the public good under the Second Amendment if there's some right of access to guns about which we could have comparable debates about public health consequences and so forth. And with respect to the rest, of, uh, the rest of it, we're free to define the public good for ourselves. Now, the Supreme Court has told us a little bit in the relatively recent past about what kinds of justifications are sufficient to define the public good. Uh, and so, for example, uh, with respect to uh, same-sex sodomy in a case called Lawrence versus Texas, the court said that, well, if it, in Texas had said that uh, members of the same sex should not have certain kinds of sexual relations with one another. And Texas then tried to defend that law, saying, in, in our judgment, it is in the public good to have this prohibition. And the Supreme Court told us in that case, by a narrow vote, 5-4, with a quite vocal dissent on this point, that mere moral disapproval is not enough. So at least moral, at least when it comes to certain sexual intimacy practices, merely the majoritarian judgment that this is immoral behavior is not a sufficient justification for uh, making it illegal. Whether morality is a sufficient justification in other settings, somewhat ratcheted down from uh, the privacy instinct that we uh, often have about sexual intimacy remains an open question. Uh, and if, so if morality is not sufficient, then it typically is some kind of adverse impact where the surrounding majority can say it's not just because we think it's wrong, but because we can identify 
X, Y, or Z consequences that's going to flow to the rest of us if you are allowed to do it. So pornography, for example, uh, or obscenity, uh, which is the constitutional term of art. Obscenity is a form of speech that gets no constitutional protection, and it was deemed not to have constitutional protection because, for a variety of reasons, one is the court said a community is entitled to decide that having theaters where even just consulting adults uh, go in and see certain kinds of material, that when they come back out of the theater, they're going to have some kind of an impact on the larger community. And so we're going to leave communities free to decide whether they want that influence in their community or, or, or whether they don't. Yeah, um, but so let me throw it down to you, Doug, and talk a little bit about um, how, how um, health-related initiatives bubble up from, from the public. If, uh, if there is a desire within the public, um, uh, groups many years ago saying, look, I, I don't want people smoking next to me at the restaurant uh, that I'm eating dinner at, or I'm in a classroom environment, and uh, I don't want to have all this smoke around me. If we could think of any of the arguments that one heard, you know, in my case, when I was in college, years and years ago, there were people who were trying to, uh, you know, stop other students from smoking because they didn't, they didn't want it in the air they were breathing. So sometimes it, it, and I remember thinking at the time, oh yeah, that'd be nice if, if people would stop smoking in this classroom because I'd rather not have it too. But I never thought that all these years later we'd be in an environment where now we have communities legislating certain sorts of uh, environments where you can't do things that affect other people like smoking. So how does this happen when it comes from individuals? Well, I mean, you, you've mentioned it. You both have, have touched on that. It's, it's when someone's actions is going to affect, and in public health, the health of someone else. And it was mentioned in a previous uh, segment uh, as the science became better. So let's go back to the tobacco. Um, you smoking, we knew it did harm to you. In 1964, the Surgeon General you know, brought together research. What should we do about that? Uh, you know, and, and there were certain things, you know, one, education, let's warn people this is not good for them. But then we had the science that your smoking affects me, affects my health, and we could begin to quantify the, the morbidity and mortality, the, the disease and death, to the innocent bystander, if you will. So then we started getting laws to protect those folks. Um, one of the good benefits of that was then the smokers were inconvenienced and perhaps nudged towards uh, you know, reducing their use or, or deciding to quit. Uh, we, we see this a lot you know, uh, with some of the regulations that we have uh, for vaccinations in schools. Uh, in order to register in the public schools or even a lot of the licensed private schools they've adopted, your child needs to be, to be vaccinated. Not necessarily, again, in terms of public health, uh, from my point of view, not necessarily, I, I don't want to vaccinate you to protect you. I, I do. But really, it's to protect the, I'm protecting the larger public or the public at large. So, you know, we're looking at ways, is, are we reducing harm? You know, we, we mentioned, you know, morality. Well, is it moral? We are, in essence, legislating morality by the definition of, is it moral for, for your actions to harm me? Uh, a lot of what public health does is we, we look at data, we look at, uh, we assess what's going on in a community uh, and then digging down to, to what are the factors then that pose harm to us 
And then we propose uh, regulations to the policymakers say this needs to be regulated because it's doing harm. What kinds of uh, public health challenges do you face? You, you direct public health here, here in uh, Johnson County. What are the biggest challenges you think uh, right now that need to be addressed by our community? Well, uh, you, you know, I, I've talked about uh, health assessments, you know, and I, I can tell you uh, a health assessment, you know, uh, heart disease, cancer, uh, strokes, et cetera, and I can link it back to tobacco. Tobacco, to me, is still, you know, it's the still quantifiably the number one cause of premature death and disability in the United States. There's a lot of things we could do. Um, I don't know if, you know, do, do we, uh, some of the criticism is, well, if it's that bad, why don't you propose just to outlaw it, do away with it. Now we're starting to step on the toes, you know, do I have a right to tell you not to kill yourself or do, do uh, things detrimental to your health as long as it's not affecting me? Uh, I don't think we're in a political situation, uh, and there's there's all sorts of arguments that we're ready to take that on. So we're trying to, again, do things to protect those who are too young to make that decision. Uh, we do that all the time. Uh, you know, there's certain age where you can get a driver's license. There's certain age where you can buy tobacco, uh, consume alcohol, do other dangerous or potentially dangerous things. So that is regulated. Uh, and we want to see those tightened up. There, there's, a, there's a number of, of issues of, of access to tobacco, also e-cigarettes, which is, there's some knowns, there's still some unknowns, so we want to be precautionary and say, what can we do to get out ahead of this? Do we need to, in 20 years, go, darn, I wish we'd gotten ahead of it, because now we see that there's really bad results here. So we have the opportunity, let's, let, let's be more precautionary regulate them, use some of the same strategies we have with tobacco. Uh, but there's resistance because not all of the data, we don't have all of the data yet because it's so new. So keeping up with data that makes sense is always a challenge. Um, and just because the data is there and the data is good doesn't mean it's accepted. Some people don't want to be confused by the facts. Uh, and, and, and policy is difficult. And, and our Constitution allows us to make good decisions or bad decisions. So it's, it's always a challenge, you know, how far do we want to go? Um, do I want legislation on the size of sodas you can drink? I, per, me personally, I'm not ready for that because you drinking a large soda doesn't affect my health. However, uh, if you develop uh, adult uh, onset diabetes or you die prematurely, that does affect society. So I do have an interest in your personal health. And it's, it's worth underscoring, those are questions of political rights, not really questions of constitutional rights. Whether they're talking about large sodas or uh, tobacco or cannabis, the question is politically, do we want to acknowledge a right of access uh, it's not a constitutional question because for the Constitution does have this concept of liberty, uh, kind of an amorphous, almost all-encompassing notion. Unenumerated rights uh, would fall under that tent. But with limited exceptions, the right to privacy in which the abortion right is uh, based being a notable exception, for the most part the court would say, uh, yes, you do, you do have a constitutional right to smoke in a sense. 
okay? But it gets very minimal protection. And in order to invade that right, the government only needs to have a rational justification. Okay? And in the language of constitutional law, demanding rationality is a very low threshold. It's not a requirement that by a preponderance of the evidence you can show that it's harmful and so forth. It's a very, very low threshold where the courts are leaving law, uh, policy-making bodies, state legislatures and, and Congress, free uh, to do what they wish. So yes, there's a sense in which you have a constitutional right to drink or to smoke or to have large beverages, but the government's free to take those things away so long as it has a rational justification. That's our understanding uh, up to this point. So it leaves these things almost entirely in the political realm. So it becomes a question for our elected leaders and for voters on election day to decide whether they're happy with uh, the course of policy making up to that point. Um, if you look back over the, I don't know, the last century or even longer, um, have, has there been an increase in the sense of, uh, I'll turn to you for this one, Doug, I suppose, because um, uh, public power in terms of helping to push health agendas forward, would you say that, that you know, we can look back over history and say this really ramped up in such and so era or, or this particular crisis caused the public to realize they had to step up and push for kind of communal change? Uh, well, I don't know if I'm the, the best expert on, on the history of that. Some of the things, uh, you know, in, in my recent uh, history, you know, we, we look at things like, uh, you know, a, an outbreak, H1N1, was anytime there's a crisis, uh, there seems to be a more willingness of the public to say, we need to do some intervention here. Um, you know, allow the government to spend some money to do some things, maybe uh, we'll be a little less critical of efforts to quarantine or isolate. Um, when things are going well, you know, why do we want to ramp it up again? Uh, you know, so, it, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a hard, I wish I had a better answer for you, but, but things go, um, th there are certain landmarks I mentioned, you know, the Surgeon General uh, report in 1964 was a huge landmark. It got people's attention. It was a position of stature which uh, was a great educational tool and woke some people up or, or, it, or it empowered some people to say, hey, you know, the, the, you know, that tobacco smoke has always bothered me. It stinks, my clothes stink. You know, I, I want to do something about this. And, 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 you know, you didn't see immediate changes, but though I think some landmark things like that were, were startup changes. There's an interesting, uh, one of the big cases in American constitutional law concerns this uh, kind of, this question about uh, early efforts to try to intervene on behalf of public policy. And uh, it involved New York, lawmakers deciding that uh, bakers faced particularly dangerous working conditions. They were inhaling flour dust uh, all the time. They were on their feet. They had to get up barely in the morning. It was hot. They worked terribly long hours. And so lawmakers decided that they were going to put a limit on how long someone could work as a baker, how many hours per day, how many uh, days per week. And it was grounded in public health concern, or at least the health of the, those in the, in, the, in the baking profession. And it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, famously within constitutional circles struck down the law, deeming it insufficiently justified 
uh, and recognized something that was called the right to contract. If a baker wants to work 18, 20 hours a day and someone wants to pay him to do it, they've got a right to do that. And these, these uh, not very well substantiated, the court said, health concerns for the baker, they're just not powerful enough uh, to justify interfering with this unwritten constitutional right to contract. Uh, it's called the Lochner era in the early 1900s, and the court got very aggressively involved in looking at either public health or quasi-public health efforts. You know, the state of Oregon decided that uh, women, uh, particularly pregnant women, shouldn't be on their feet for long periods of time in factories. And the courts got very just engaged in the project of deciding whether the health justifications for these laws were sufficient uh, to warrant them. And uh, the story is that by the late New Deal period, the court beat an almost total retreat uh, and said, you know, for us to be involved in closely scrutinizing these laws to see whether they're sufficiently justified, we're not institutionally competent to do that. This ought to be left to uh, elected officials, which really opens the door uh, to those in the public health profession or who want to lobby those in the public health profession or however the system works to decide for themselves on the strength of evidence or not on the strength of evidence what kind of policy they're going to have. But that, uh, that it's been a century now since the court experimented with being involved uh, heavily in this area and decided this really isn't for us. Well, I See, I had that entirely wrong. I would have thought that the New Deal, Deal era was a time when the courts were really uh, trying to sort of be out there working on behalf of what we conceive of as the public or the public interest. But it's interesting to hear you say that that really the... It depends on how you define what the public yeah. interest is. I yeah, mean, yeah. you've got to talk about early New Deal and middle and, and late yeah. New Deal. The yeah. court was very involved, you know, about rights to, uh, to unionize yeah. and yeah. being uh, one of them, working conditions and so forth. And in the early New Deal, the court was itself taking a close second look at the rationales underlying these various legislative enactments. By the end of the New Deal, and kind of the, in constitutional law, we kind of marked the end of the New Deal with the court saying, "We're just going to scrutinize these laws for mere rationality," mm -hmm. and you know we go decades and decades and decades before we see the court again, even venturing in in any kind of tangential way uh, to get back involved in that project. And mm -hmm. if you list the you know the top ten worst Supreme Court decisions of all time, those who study constitutional law would would pick one or more from that era, saying it was really inappropriate these unelected, polit largely politically unaccountable justices to make these decisions uh, for the public. People ought to be able to get the kinds of policies mm. that they want. Mm. And uh, to a large degree, the court has held true to, uh, yeah. to that lesson. I see. And I think that's, that's kind of the point I was trying to make earlier is, you know, we can provide information, education, uh, whatever data, um, but it's still going to be an opinion. It really does come down to a political opinion or public opinion uh, as by who you vote in, was this important enough? Did we make our case, you know, did the opposition uh, make their case better? Uh, it, you know, it, I, I remember having a, a, a staff meeting and uh, we had one of our legislators in there and uh, one of the staff asked, why can't they just do the right thing? Well, the, the right thing is a matter of opinion. Um, you know, I think it's the right thing to protect someone from harmful tobacco smoke. Someone else may not think that is right. So it's, it's our job to, to influence, educate, nudge, encourage things that we think uh, are for the public good in 
my opinion or you know, who's ever my collective opinion, not who. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not the boss yet. Uh, <laughs> only of a small group. Um, you know, so so that that really you know, kind of going back to your question, that's really the challenge is you know finding that balance. I, I can make a recommendation, and I may disagree. You know, I say this limiting soda size. I may convince myself that that's the the best thing to do to prevent uh, diabetes or obesity. You know, I might be wrong, um, uh, but then it's my job to try to convince someone of, of that, take action. If they don't take action, that then was the political decision, and, yeah. and I need to, to continue to do things that I think are will improve the health or the environment for health. Yeah. Take something like tobacco, you know, let's take the case as settled that tobacco is harmful. Even there, defining the public interest, there's room for ideological disagreement. You know, you can say we can define public health on the one hand saying it's a harmful product. You could also say, well, it would be harmful to the public to let the government regulate because then the people become dependent on the government to make decisions for them. And you hear that. Or you even heard it's been some time since people made this argument in mainstream politics, but People ought to be able to play out the course of their own decisions. If they want to do something as foolish as smoke tobacco and die an early death, then let them do that. And it's better to weed, weed those genes out of the gene pool now. You can find historical <laughs> proponents. You can find historical proponents for those views. And all of them think they're making arguments based on the public interest. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, one last I'll try to squeeze yeah. in oh, here. Oh, no problem. You know, we talk about uh, you know, allowing personal freedom. I, I think one part that we haven't discussed and that that we really haven't grasped then is uh, then you need to take full ownership of your actions. So the, the person dying of lung cancer or heart disease, what's the public's obligation then to treat, to care for them or their family? And, and I think we've removed ourselves from responsibility of action. Fuzzy though in an area like it, tobacco because if I have lung cancer it's not because I ever for one moment smoked a cigarette but I grew up in a household where people did smoke so you know am I am I um, the actor in that whole bad decision I it, probably well, not yeah and then we can have the whole debate about do, do we as a moral society have an obligation to care for those who, who can't care regardless of how yeah. they got in that situation and not yeah. be judgmental so. Maybe the, maybe the next program, we can yeah. continue <laughs> on that. Yeah. Uh, did you have any last thoughts? Okay. Yeah, well, I'm going to leave this, it to your clock. Uh, no, this has been really great. So Todd Pettis from the University of Iowa Law School, thank you so much. And thank you. Doug Beardsley from Johnson County Public Health, thank you. Thank it's you. been a really interesting evening for all of us, I think, so thanks. And I want to thank all of you for coming to our live show and everyone for watching. Um, that's all the time we have right now, but we have another program coming up on March 3rd, and this program will be here in this same place, and it's about energy cultures. Energy cultures in the age of the Anthropocene. If you haven't heard this term yet, you'll be hearing it probably in the future, and you can hear about it on March 3rd. Um, uh, we will be here in this room once again, and if you'd like to watch the show or any of our other World Campus programs, you can find them on UITV, on YouTube, and uh, on iTunes and the International Programs website. So thanks very much for being with us for tonight's program, and we hope to see you all on March 3rd.